find your seat. Hope you got into a good conversation. Hello to everybody at home. So uh, we really do want you to head out and have some coffee right after this. The, the coffee cart, espresso drinks, hot chocolate, it's going to be awesome. Continue this conversation on this controversial topic. Um, I didn't properly introduce myself earlier. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here. A special welcome to those of you who are visiting or maybe here one of the first few times. We know it takes courage to come into a new community, so we're glad that you're here. We hope you can get a chance to connect with some people. Um, I, I, I do think it's good that we should just put it out there. Who thinks it's already, you can already be listening to Christmas music? Look, people, it's 62 days away. I asked Alexa this morning. 62 days. All right, well, we're just going to move on. We're going to move on from this controversial topic. Whoo, whoo. Okay. Okay, tell me if this is something that you have experienced in your life. Um, you build some relationships with some people. You get to know some new friends, maybe as an adult. And then there's this moment where you think about whether or not you're going to cross this kind of imaginary boundary of whether or not they're going to actually get to meet or get to know your family, okay? Like your, your family, like get to know your family, okay? Or maybe you start dating somebody and you're like, okay, when, when is the moment when I should take the, the leap and allow this new person in my life, friend, significant other, this person, these people, to meet the people that I came from, Okay? For some of you, that might not be a huge question, but for a lot of us, it is, okay? I will be honest, and that when my husband and I met, JD, this was a question for both of us. When do we let this person see the people that I came from? And when, uh, when we started dating, we were in our mid-30s, so there's some, a lot has happened, okay? And I remember when I came over to meet JD's family for the first time, his parents and his sister, they filled the entire evening with ridiculous stories about JD, I don't know if they were trying to scare me off or what. They were telling me stories like how he like ran into a chain link fence on his bike and got his head stuck and they had to get him out with the jaws of life. I'm not sure that's like the jaws of life, but or like this one time how he was the one of the guys holding one of the flags on Mission Sunday at his church and didn't wear a belt that day. You know, and he knew the flag's not supposed to touch the ground, so guess what did touch the ground? His pants. Yep. These are the stories they told me the first time I met them. And, you know, you don't all know him maybe, but if you do know my husband, I looked at him, he looked proud. <laughs> and then he came to meet my family, and he was like, all right, what's the stories? I'm so much more boring than him. Like, they had nothing, and he was really proud then. He's like, already winning, you know. We're still working on how we're on the same team, but he's, he was real proud. But you know what? The thing is, is that, as you, as you can imagine, after the jokes, after the initial kind of testing the waters, breaking the ice, you welcome someone in in your life, whether it's a new friend or whatever, and, and, and they start to see the reality of your family, the messiness, right? What was true about mo both JD and my family is that we've experienced some serious brokenness in our families. There's been loss. There's been grief. There's been bad choices. There's been so many things, right? There's been emotional health crises, that, both of our families. And there's been a messiness and a brokenness and things that, to be honest, were sometimes felt like, oh, man, this person is coming into this now. And so I think because a lot of us have had this experience where our families are at, at best, like, interesting, like Minnesota interesting, which if you don't know what that means, that means awkward to, like, really bad. So interesting could mean anything. And if you have a family experience like that, what you know 
is that you might feel a little sheepish when you're welcoming people into that experience. And I think that that's understandable. And what's, I think, a reality for a lot of us as well is that we have that same feeling and that same emotion when it comes to welcoming people into our spiritual family as well, into the church. Because we're like, oh man, the thing is is that there's a lot of brokenness and it's really messy and people are acting out of that brokenness and it's not pretty. And it's, in it, you know, there's some funny stories too. We've got some funny stories, but for the most part, some of those stories are, are not funny and how it goes. And what does it mean to say, I, I want to welcome people into this unhealthy reality where the brokenness keeps us from being completely healthy and completely whole, doesn't it? And so we have this tension, I think, of what it looks like for us as people, broken people who live broken lives, who then, what, make broken families, trying to live whole and healthy, but we've got this sin and this brokenness in our life. This is how we can feel about the church, but it, and it leads us to feel a little sheepish sometimes about bringing people into this conversation even, not just into this room. I'm, I'm talking about into the, the family, into the relationships. And so I think it makes sense why we would ask this question we've been asking, why church? Why be a part of the messy family of God? Why, why do that? Why be a part of, sometimes I say the church big C or like the global church around the world, or why be a part of a local community like Mill City or other communities, Corner Coffee Church? Why? Why would we do this? And I think it's a good question because sometimes it feels like bringing people into your broken family with the struggles of being whole and healthy, doesn't it? But there's this vision that God has for the family of God, for the church, that I have to say, when you, when you look at this vision, it's bold. It's, it's countercultural. And it has the ability to be really powerful for good things, not just for some of the messiness and the brokenness. And because of that brokenness, we don't often live up to that vision, right? But when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, which you'll see very clearly today, we can live into the kind of family that God intends for us to be. Even with our imperfections, we can experience moments, glimpses, experiences that say, this is what family is supposed to be like. And we see in the, the beginning of, of the church how it started in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts. This is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be in there, and we're also going to be in the book of Romans today. And, and people sometimes say the book of Acts means the Acts of the Apostles, but I like to think of it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because let's be honest, those people were just trying to keep up with what the Holy Spirit was doing in this story. And so you see the beginning of the church. And you see these leaders like Peter and Priscilla and Paul and Lydia, and they're giving their whole life to this idea that other people, anybody, can be welcomed into this family of God. And it was a big deal, and it was countercultural, and it was radical at that time. Jesus' family was open to all. It was a countercultural family defined by the love of Jesus. I want to watch this one-minute Bible Project video that gives you this snapshot of how the church grew in the beginning of the church in Acts. Check this out. Well, the worship of the gods held together Roman culture. They believed the gods kept their cities safe, and the temple worship of the gods was a huge part of their economy. Paul wasn't just adding Jesus as a new god to the list. He was saying all other gods are powerless, even a sham. So he's undermining their way of life. Yes, and more than that. When Paul announced Jesus as a new king, he would call him Lord or Son of God, the very titles people used to refer to the emperor of Rome. So Paul's message could easily be heard as a threat against the entire political order. 
why would anyone join this movement? I mean, it sounds dangerous. Well, people were captivated by the story of Jesus and how his love created communities where all people were treated as equals, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or economic status. These people formed new families that would eat together. They lived sacrificially and took care of their poor. They lived like Jesus actually was the king. Right. And so in every city where Paul announced the message about Jesus, people were being transformed by God's spirit to become new kinds of humans. So Paul would stay in that city and teach them the way of Jesus. And then he would leave for a new city. So right in the middle, Tim, the, the theologian, he says that the people were captivated by the story of Jesus and his love created communities where all people were treated as equals. Regardless of ethnicity, of gender, of economic status, people were being transformed by God's spirit to become new kinds of humans. And so the answer that I have today for our question, why church, is this. I'll put it on the screen. Because when empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church can be a tangible expression of God's multi-ethnic and restorative family on mission. When empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church can be a tangible expression of God's multi-ethnic and restorative family on mission. In the video, they mention how this way of Jesus was countercultural. It even threatened the politics and the power structures of that time. And leaders like Peter, who we talked about last week, and Paul, they went out boldly because they knew that this new way of being family could change things for people. It could change the reality because it was motivated and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus. So let's look how Paul describes this new family in Romans 8, if you have a Bible. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome. He can't be in the city of Rome, so he's sending this letter to the Roman church. And, and this is one of the most theological of all of Paul's letters. So what does that mean? That means Paul is being very intentional to explain concepts about God and about Jesus and why Jesus' life and death and resurrection were so powerful and what they accomplished. So listen to how Paul describes the type of family made possible by Jesus here in Romans 8. I'm going to start in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Really quick, I'm going to put four things that we see as distinctions about God's family that you see here in this passage. First, you see that the, God's family is spirit-filled and without fear. Now, y'all know that sometimes when it comes to parenting little ones, we don't have our own kids, but there's kind of this like, well, you just wait till mom gets home, you know, or you just wait till dad gets home. And we don't really want the kids to be afraid of mom and dad, but that's sometimes we go there, right? But the family of God is not afraid of the parent. There's not fear there, according to this distinction. The second thing is that there's an intimate relationship with God. You heard the word Abba in there. This is most trans easily translated as daddy. There is no history before this, these words written here where a, 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 a human would refer to a deity as dad. Like that's not a thing before Jesus and before the way that, that Jesus talked about the Father and the way we see here. And then 
It's an intimate relationship with each other. So when you see here this idea of adoption to sonship, now Paul is not trying to exclude women here. Paul's talking about sonship for a reason, because at that time, if you were the firstborn son, you were the heir, right? That was the very distinct culture at that time in most cultures then. And so the idea that everyone is adopted to sonship, and then it goes even further to say co-heirs. So that, I mean, Jesus could have been like, hey, look, I'm the firstborn son. Everybody else get in line. But he didn't. He says, come and stand with me as equals, as co-heirs with Jesus before God, the father, before the parent. And then we see that there's this intimate relationship between each other because there's not this pecking order, right? There's this siblings that can actually love each other with equality and love. And then finally, you see it's a family with kingdom responsibility, right? That's what this idea of being heirs is. You have a responsibility. You, you're born into a family and you have a parent. You have two parents. You have a parent. But not only is your parent a loving parent, your parent's also the boss, okay? So that means you've got responsibility if you're in this family. You don't just end up in the family uh, being able to just have the relationship because you're an heir of the kingdom of God where your dad's the king. In the kingdom of God, our parent is the king. When I was a little kid, my dad would tell us what he called daddy stories, okay? And daddy stories were about when daddy was a little boy. And some of you know that, that my dad died when I was in high school, so the memories of these daddy stories are really precious to me. And my dad was a storyteller, you know, where we got it from. And, you know, he would tell stories, and every time he told it, it got more larger than life. So I'll tell you the, the, the story the way that I heard it the, late, the, the last time he told it, okay? <laughs> he was like, well, when I was like six years old, I'm pretty sure he was 12. When I was like six years old, little Bobby, little Bobby, that's my dad's name, little Bobby came to work with his dad, my grandpa, and he was a general contractor of a construction site. And little Bobby came to work one day, and, and, and his dad said, Bobby, run out there. You're quick. Run out there. That bulldozer's about to bulldoze across the boundary line into the next property. Run out there and tell him to stop. So little Bobby ran out there, six years old, probably 12. And he's like in front of the bulldozer, slow down, slow down. And the bulldozer says, get out of the way, kid, and yells some expletives at him. And he's like, no, you need to stop. And he's like, I'm going to roll you over, kid. Finally, the guy turns off. This is the story. Finally, the guy turns off the bulldozer after moving it a little towards him, maybe. And he says, who do you think you are? <laughs> and, and little Bobby says, I'm Bobby. Okay, get out of the way, Bobby. And he says, but my dad is the contractor. And the bulldozer guy's like, well, why didn't you say that in the first place, kid? And he turns the bulldozer around, right? Little Bobby was just a kid. But his dad happened to also be the boss. And so he had authority to, to talk to something with a lot of power, a person and a machine, and say, you need to stop. Something can shift when we agree with God through our prayers. When we pray a blessing over little Murray, it means something. It's not just something we do to be cute. Listen, every time we pray, what do we say at the end? In the name of Jesus. That's not just like a cute saying. It's because that's the power of the prayer. When we talk about our mission statement, to love our community in the name of Jesus, that's intentional. Because if we just try to go it alone with our human love, you've all been there, we run out. But if we say, hey, we're going to do this in the name of Jesus and receive that love and forgiveness and grace, it's from there that we can love people in the name of Jesus. So once again, why church? Because when empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church can be a tangible expression of God's multi-ethnic 
and restorative family on mission. The story in Acts shows us how people were made aware of this, right? You see the little lights on the video. They, they spread across these different cities. But it was not an easy thing to do in that culture and in that time. And sometimes it's tempting for us here in 2021 to be like, oh, I bet it was similar for them in the first century. No, it wasn't. It was 2,000 years ago. But it was challenging then, and it's challenging now, isn't it, to talk about what it means to be a part of the family of God. We have distinct challenges of our own culturally, don't we? in the cultures that we're a part of. And, and here we see Tim Mackey saying this idea that people back then were captivated by the story of Jesus, and it was his love that created these communities where people were treated as equals, right? And today, it's that relying on that same love and the story of Jesus. This is our story that we're jumping into and saying, Jesus, we want to be a part of your story because that's the story that changes things. And the early church was charged with this opportunity and this mission to invite other people into that family. And we're given that same mission today, to say that this is a family where people are welcome. Even if they're not sure if they want to be part of the family, they can be around the family. But we face our own challenges, don't we, in this time and in this place. And so I want to look at one example of where Paul is giving people the invitation to say, hey, you can be a part of this family if you want to. And what can we learn from this example? You could read through the book of Acts. Every time you see them trying to figure out how in their culture and the different cultures they were a part of in these cities, ask yourself, I wonder what that teaches me about how I enter into the spaces, the, the contexts that I'm in now. And what does it look like for me to extend that invitation in a way that's, that's authentic to me and who I am and who God made me to be into this context? And so I want to look in Acts 17, uh, if, if you can sl flip over to there. There's a city, Athens, where there is a plurality of belief systems. Sounds familiar, different realities, but a plurality of belief systems that are vast. And it made this group of people in Athens particularly tough to connect with around matters of faith because of this. But I think we can learn from some intentional things that Paul does. As they enter the city of Athens, they meet these different people, and they're, they're just honest about why they're there. They're like, well, we follow Jesus. Have you heard of him? And they're just telling people about it. And sure enough, people become curious, including some philosophers who were a big deal in Athens. And they say, hey, this is really interesting. And in Acts 17, 19, it says, they took him, Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. They were genuinely curious, and they wanted to hear more. And this Areopagus, you can picture, is kind of like this open area with a lot of little statues all around it that represented different gods. And because a lot of people were anxious about not ticking off any of the gods, there were extra statues just to make sure that they covered all their bases. And so this is where they bring him. Come, come stand in the middle of all these idols and tell us what you're talking about, Paul, into their space. And so he, he comes in here and he's standing symbolically surrounded by all of these statues that represent different gods. And this is what he says. Look at the intentionality and in how Paul is speaking to them. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are his kids. We can be in God's family. And he goes on from there. So it says in, in verse 17, let me read what it says in verse, uh, verse 32. Listen to this. In verse 32, you hear, after Paul shares, here's the reaction that people have to what he says. And I think this is a really helpful reaction because it feels true to us today. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Maybe we've seen some sneers before. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject, but we're not going to commit. But that's curious, right? And then others believed, it says. Other people believed, and, and then it talks about a few different people. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed and became followers of Jesus. So we just see some patterns, I think, here for Paul. And I want to ask, how do these patterns help us today when we think about the, the arguably difficult task of even trying to say why church to the people around us? Why, why be a part of this family, this, this family that's so much brokenness? I think it's helpful to see that realistic response there in Acts 17. So let's look at the pattern. The first thing we see is Paul is honest and authentic about who he is and who he follows. And everyone else that's with him is too. We know that our culture today cares about authenticity, don't we? So we're just being us. And if one of the closest relationships, arguably the closest relationship in your life is Jesus, you're just being honest about that. Be yourself. I've noticed that so many people of different worldviews around us, have you noticed this too? Maybe they're, they're really quick to share what they're about. You don't even have to ask. <laughs> people will be like, let me tell you what I believe. Like, Whoa, okay. Um, but I notice with Christians, we tend to follow, fall into like two different ditches. One ditch is like, we're going to tell you even if you didn't ask because I want to be loud and I'm going to get in your face about it and I'm going to argue with you maybe even about why this is right and what I think Jesus cares about even if you didn't ask. And, and maybe I'm going to even throw in a couple things that I think you should do even though you don't believe in this, right? And then the other side, the other ditch is maybe we can see how long before people have to find out that I'm with Jesus because there's not always a great experience with that. And I think this is important for us to confront. I was talking with one of my friends who is an atheist, and she told me the story about how she went to a therapist for a while, and the therapist, after three months of meeting with the therapist, got new business cards and put a Jesus fish on the business card. And she just said, look, it doesn't even necessarily bother me that the person's a Christian. What bothered me is that the therapist wasn't upfront about that in the beginning. I thought that was so interesting. And then she said, you know what? Tell your people to stop it with the sneaky Jesus fish. And I was like, most of us are over the Jesus fish thing, but I get your point. <laughs> like, just be yourself. The second thing we see Paul doing here is that he meets people in their context and he speaks their language, so to speak. Of course, he's probably speaking their actual language. We know Paul spoke multiple languages. But Paul is going to them, and then he follows them into their space, the Areopagus. And, and we can learn from this, can't we? For a long time, the church has been like, let's get people into our space. That'll be comfortable for them, probably not. But what, what if, as the family of God, we go to them and, and show the love and be the people that we feel Jesus has called us to be with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? And here we see Paul doing that, authentically being himself. And then verse 28, he does these quotes, right? For in him we live, move, and have our being, and we are his offspring. These are two different philosophers of their time. 
He's speaking in their cultural context, in their language, so to speak. And I think for us, this applies because sometimes, at least I'll admit, I struggle to figure out how to talk about my faith in just normal language that other people can understand. And not because it's too complicated, but because it's not words they're used to. It's not about being super simple. It's about being like comprehensible, where people would understand what you're talking about in normal language. This is what I think translating into the context looks like for us. And so I think that brings us to the third part of the pattern we see from Paul. When he was invited, notice, he followed them, and then he boldly shared about Jesus and invited them to seek after, right? right? To, to reach out and, and seek because God's not far from you. And that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That perhaps the best mode of operation with people is just to say, hey, have you like looked around to see if something supernatural has happened in your life, like that maybe something like God could be doing that? I've tried this. It's way more effective than arguing with people, turns out. It's just saying, hey, you know what, that seems like God to me, and talking about that in your own life rather than trying to argue. When we are people who live the way that we feel called to live and do what Jesus taught us to do and live into the way of Jesus or the works and the words and the ways of Jesus as we've talked about here, if we do that just honestly without the sneaky Jesus fish, I think that that can be perception shifting. Think about this. How else is the perception of our spiritual family in the public's eyes, how else is it going to shift if those who are trying to love others authentically in the name of Jesus, right? We're trying to do that. If the people who are trying truly to love other people in the name of Jesus are being sneaky about the in the name of Jesus part and keeping it a secret, how is that perception of of it going to shift? So when you think about the context you find yourself in, I, I know they're very different. And I don't go to work where you go to work, and I don't spend time where you spend time. But I want you just to think about this in the context you find yourself in, from the coffee shop to the break room, wherever. What would it look like for you to be just a little bit more authentic about who you are as a Jesus follower? What would that look like for you in your life? I was talking to a guy from our community here at Mill City last week, and he told me this really interesting story. He got into this conversation with his coworker, and uh, you know, I think that what this says is that he wasn't being super pushy about his faith, but he was being approachable because this coworker knew that he, he was a person of faith. And so th- this gal just said to him at one point, what do you believe? And he's like, oh boy, here we go. Let's see how this goes, <laughs> you know. Oh, and then he shared. And after that, he said, well, what do you believe? And he, and he started having this conversation with her. And it was really interesting, he said, because she shared that she was kind of spiritually seeking and that she was curious about Christianity And then she realized, I don't really know what Christians believe. And she was like, so I figure maybe I should start reading the Bible. And this is what she said. So then I started reading it, and holy beep, I guess that's why they have Bible studies. Sorry, that was the explicit lyrics version of the story. This is what she says to him, you know, because she's going, whoa. But look at that, how approachable that it was for him to share that. People might be just more curious about it than we think, but they might not know that we're people they can approach with their curiosity. I wonder if our lack of vulnerability or maybe our like holding our our cards a little too close to our chest, not only does it keep people from knowing about who we are, but it might even make it seem like we are not people who are open to them and what they think about, what they care about, what they believe. So this is important for me to say. I'm not talking merely about inviting people to church, to the worship service, although that's, I mean, that's good, 
I'm talking about inviting people into your life, into what it means to be the family of God every day, not merely on Sunday, to be this family on mission throughout our life in general. Then again, I will share that I had an experience recently where we were getting to know one of our neighbors, and he was one of those guys who told us really early, he said, hey, just so you know, I'm either an agnostic or an atheist, not sure, but pretty sure I don't believe in God. And I say this cheesy thing every time, pretty sure, sounds like there's a chance. And you know, haha, dumb and dumber, it's funny. And, and so we get into these conversations, and then months, months after we were talking with him and trying to be our normal selves, he gets really sheepish this one time we're hanging out at a brewery and he gets like really kind of awkward and I'm going what's wrong with Randy and then he's just like oh Seth I want to ask you something I've been thinking about it for a long time and I'm just not sure it's totally fine no matter what but I'm just asking you know even though I'm not a Christian don't know if I believe in God or not but is it okay if I come to your church and I was like of course I was like well yes of course Randy come as you are it's fine on the inside I was like fail what a fail that he didn't know that he was welcome because I thought he was going to be offended if I asked. And I have to tell you that since that day a couple years ago, I have prayed, Holy Spirit, do not let me miss that again, where someone could just feel like they can belong. They don't even have to know what they believe. They don't have to behave in a certain way, but there's a place where they can belong. That's something I've tried not to miss. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And just like I did last week, I want to offer some questions for you to take with you this week. So you can take a picture of them or just write them down real quick. But here's the questions. What does living as an authentic and loving Jesus follower in ways that are translated into the context that you find yourself in? And then finally, are you seeking Jesus and inviting others to seek Jesus? Because there's no point in inviting other people to, to reach out and seek if, if that's not your life. And as you see, Paul says, seek, seek God, seek Jesus, reach out until you feel something that feels like it might be God and grab onto that because God is not far from any one of us. Jesus lived in a way that made it clear that everyone was invited to be a part of the family. The difference that Jesus makes is that everyone's invited, even though he got a lot of flack for it, didn't he? Eating with the wrong people, spending time with the wrong people. As God's kids, as co-heirs with Jesus, we have the opportunity not only to be a part of the family, but to live as though Jesus was truly king. To live as though Jesus was truly king, the king of kings, who has given us forgiveness, who has invited us to be a part of his forever family, to, to be in our life now and forever. This isn't a perfect family. We know that we're awkward sometimes. We know that we have plenty of brokenness that we give need desperate grace for, right? But we know that we need grace for, and that's why we're in the family, because we have a loving parent who's also the boss, who's also the king, and has made a way for restoration and forgiveness for each of us as individuals and for us as a family. Why church? Because when empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church can be a tangible expression of God's multi-ethnic and restorative family on mission, a family that anyone is invited to join.